The following podcast is with Scott Patterson, who is the author of Chaos Kings, this wonderful book that goes deep into the worldviews of these various Chaos Kings, the most notably of which, for you and I, Nassim Taleb. But as well, he looks at Nassim Taleb's uh, partner at Universa, the hedge fund that he advises for, Mark Spitznagel. He looks at a sort of contrary figure to Nassim Taleb, Didier Sonnet, um, and many, many, many others. He also goes into Bill Ackman's COVID trade, one of the single greatest trades of all time. But basically, Scott wrote this book, Chaos Kings, which its central thesis, which is coming to grips with the worldview of these people, where a small number of significant events significantly outweighs the small impact of the majority of the events. Um, there's a great quote from Vladimir Lenin that there are decades where nothing happens and then there are weeks where decades happen. This type of uh, quotation isn't from the book, but it is directly to the core thesis of what the book is about. So I think right up the alley of the Nisim to Lebanon Soda podcast listenership, you, my dear listener, um, but I wanted to just bring this to your attention that this podcast has actually already been on a Curious Worldview for two weeks. And just to remind you all, the Curious Worldview is my main podcasting ambition. Uh, basically, I have a weekly episode that goes up there uh, for three years now. And occasionally, I'll siphon one off that has some relevancy to Nassim Taleb um, or the inserto or you know, generally the worldview that Scott discusses here. But I think and I want us to go out on a limb and agree that we have more interests in common than simply Nassim Taleb. So I encourage you to t click on the top link in this podcast description and just go and suss out a Curious Worldview podcast. If you think there's something interesting in there for you, then a subscription and a review would just be absolutely amazing. But I wanted to bring that to your attention before we get into this podcast, just because this episode's been up there for a while and I uh, am really confident in making the assumption that you and I have more in common than simply Nassim Taleb. But in this podcast, you can expect to hear about how Scott broke the news that launched Spitznagel and Taleb's hedge fund uh, all the way back in the pre-Black Swan days. Uh, the core of the Chaos King's worldview, a lot about Nassim Taleb, a lot about serendipity, but then as well anecdotes for days that just give you a deep insight into Scott as both a journalist and an author and what he's learned from having spent so much time around these individuals. So there's absolutely nothing more for me to say. I mean, pump your good juice into this algorithm if you feel like it, five-star reviews, but I would implore you to check out a Curious Worldview podcast, which is my primary podcasting ambition. And here is the great Scott Patterson. How is spending time around and then also researching these Chaos Kings affected the way that you think about luck and serendipity in your own life? Well, uh, one of the things that, you realize uh, looking into, you know, games of chance and gambling, uh, which is kind of, you know, behind all of the the thought and research that they do. They they are very um, meticulous in the way they invest, but behind it all is chance, and it really does kind of highlight how much chance uh, and flukes play a role in our lives. You know, when you think about it, like, you know, some random thing that happened in your life, you know, maybe you decide to, you know, stop off for a coffee someplace or, you know, go visit somebody that you, you hadn't been planning to. And something comes out of that that creates a, 
you know, massive change in your life. Uh, that's that's one of the things that it, it kind of made me think about uh, a bit more. Um, people know call this contingency. It's, it's it's something that you can find throughout history where random things uh, create a fork in history that changes everything. Um, so and that's what you know. Nassim is very attuned. Nassim Taleb, who I uh, write about in the book um, is very tuned to these things that it's impossible to really predict uh, what's going to happen because the world is contingent and these random events come along and change the pathway of uh, what's what's going to happen. And, you know, it's, uh, I guess, kind of one of the main uh, things behind the Black Swan concept is these huge events just come out of nowhere. Uh, they're unpredictable. Um, but we all, we like to look back after they happen and say, oh, yeah, I saw it coming all along, uh, when in reality uh, it was entirely unpredictable. And in your own life, luck and serendipity? Uh, yeah, you know, when, <laughs> uh, one, I was talking with my editor of, of the book about this the other day, um, uh, how he, he's working on a book that's kind of uh, oriented around this concept. And it made me think about something that happened to me uh, when I was a uh, teaching assistant in graduate school. Uh, I, one day I, um, by chance, stopped off in my office to, you know, I think, pick up some papers or something. I forget exactly what it was. Um, but I, I had actually had set up a meeting with some uh, people from New York University uh, who had a summer magazine um, camp. <laughs> and I, I thought, oh, that might be interesting. But I had totally forgotten about it. And I, I wasn't going to go. And somebody in the office said, hey, weren't you going to go meet with those NYU people? And I said, oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I, you know, so I went and I actually ended up going to this uh, NYU summer school and got that's how I got into the writing business in New York so it was complete a complete fluke complete contingent if I hadn't stopped off in that office my life would have been completely different <laughs> I absolutely love that as such a succinct example of exactly that point it's largely randomness and it has created yeah. the most divergent fork ever maybe so far that's happened in your life the way you commit the majority of your time going forward from that 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 moment um so such an incredible example yeah i mean you know if you hadn't decided to go to that bar that night you wouldn't have met the you know the woman that you ended up marrying yeah <laughs> you know, so many of these things uh happen to us but we you know i think uh people like to think that their life is uh, orderly and they're planning it and they're in control when it's actually just a bunch of random things. Um, but, you know, I, I actually, I, I write about this in the book, um, how Nassim, Nassim likes to, uh, you know, he, he calls the, this the narrative fallacy um, that we you know, we like to say that it's a story, that we're in control of things, that we already always knew what was going to happen. And I think that, you know, the black swan has become uh, this concept for extreme chaos. But in a way, Nassim is violating his own rules uh, by 
call you know by putting a name on this thing and uh and i think it sort of bedeviled him a bit because people are always saying what's a black swan is this a, you know was 9-11 a black swan was uh you know the global financial crisis a black swan um and it's you know i, I think it shows how it's it's really difficult to grasp this you know the nature of chaos uh, which is, you know, my book is Chaos Kings. It's it defies logic. It's it's not something that we can really, uh, you know, you you try to grasp it and it slips away. You put a name on it, you call it a black swan, and you're actually trying to put it in a box, and you can't do that with chaos. Uh, I think this little data point would be uh, hopefully particularly interesting to you but this is now maybe the 150th episode i've recorded and in over 100 of them i've asked the guest right at the end the last question the role that serendipity has played in their lives and i've sort of framed the question so they so they aren't totally fooled by the narrative fallacy coming into it and it is uncanny scott how every single person the most some of the most pivotal things that ever happened to them whether it's the wife whether it's uh, the job, you know, whether it's just the tap on the shoulder, hey, the opportunity of a lifetime has just swept by, you got to go take it. Um, everybody has it. And it is, um, you know, obviously, Taleb, such an amazing communicator of these ideas. Well, the best takeaway from his ideas is actually how it is applied to real world to regular people, not to financial markets, you know, or not to any like uh, highfalutin intellectual ideas. But just realizing the role of chance and luck and then therefore trying to optimize for it if possible. Yeah, I mean, it's one of the things that Nassim is, uh, <laughs> he's constantly uh, talking about or you're reminding me of uh, when we talk is, is that he, he doesn't want to be known as a thinker about financial markets or a trader. He wants to be known as a philosopher, uh, somebody whose ideas can be applied to life in, in general. Uh, and, you know, I think that he's, he's largely succeeded at that, that, you know, he, um, and it's, it's also an interesting contrast with, uh, Mark Spitznagel, his, uh, colleague, you know, they founded Empirica, uh, uh, the first hedge fund that made these bets on extreme events in 1999, who could care less about being thought of as a philosopher, <laughs> Uh, and just wants to be known as a great trader. Um, and it, it's one of the uh, real sort of interesting, uh, you know, mixes and and how, you know, they work together. Um, but yeah, I mean, the seems books uh, are, I think that's why they're so popular is they aren't just uh, for financial markets. He, he's, you can really see, you know, how the trading and the strategies that they, uh, created um are behind the ideas in many ways i think that's one of the most fascinating things when you really dig into uh you know the books and you and you know where he came from so his book anti-fragile his his third book um is about how things are resilient in chaos some things can be very resilient in chaos in times of disorder uh and stress and Behind that is the trading strategy of Empirica and the second hedge fund that Mark founded, Universa, because there's nothing that's more anti-fragile than 
these put options that they buy that become extremely valuable when the market crashes. Mm. And it's, it, it is the definition of anti-fragile. Uh, just to test, uh, I think Taleb actually um, says explicitly the reason his books do sell so well is because he sort of talks about these old ideas. And as a real measure of the Lindy effect, Naval Ravikant said that Taleb's books will be still read in thousands of years from now. Do you agree with that? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, it, it wouldn't surprise me, uh, especially the Black Swan. Um, a thousand thousands of years from now, it's, you know, I, I would side with Nassim saying that we can't predict things. Uh, I would say a hundred years from now, for sure. Um, I mean, obviously, I, uh, you know, have a, uh, a great love of his books and his ideas. And I, I have for a long time. Um, th his first book, Fooled by Randomness, uh, you know, was I was a sort of a young reporter at the Wall Street Journal uh, covering hedge funds. And that's how I heard about this book was these hedge fund managers. It was kind of a, a, a cult classic to them, even though it was it was I'm talking about like early 2000s. Um, and, and it's interesting because the book is is very critical of most hedge fund managers because he's basically saying these guys are mostly just lucky and, you know, they flip the coin and it's come up, well, you know, tails for them 52% of the time uh, if they're betting on tails. But eventually it's going to, you know, come up heads uh, against them and they're going to blow up. Um, obviously, most of these traders thought that they weren't the, the lucky ones, that they had skill. Yeah. Um, so I, you know, I really liked that book and, uh, you know, this is before the Black Swan came out and, you know, talking to the hedge fund managers, there was a rumor going around that Nassim had shut down his hedge fund, Empirica. And it was kind of interesting, like, okay, here's a guy who's, you know, kind of famous for talking shit about other hedge funds. And he, you know, did something happen? Did, did he blow up? Um, so, you know, I talked to a bunch of different people. I finally tracked him down, uh, in 2007 and got the story about what happened with Empirica, uh, that it, they had shut down in 2004. And it, it's an interesting thing in the hedge fund world. They're very secretive. So a hedge fund can just shut down and you won't, you, you don't even know, it just kind of disappears. Um, so Nassim confirmed for me that they had in fact shut down and uh, and he also said, oh, I've got a new book coming out. It's called The Black Swan. And my partner, Mark Spitznagel, is launching a new hedge fund. It's called Universus. So I talked to Mark uh, and I wrote a story for The Wall Street Journal in 2007, uh, breaking the news that uh, Empirica had in fact shut down, that a new hedge fund was starting up and that Taleb has a new book coming out called The Black Swan. Um, and that's how, that's where my relationship uh, with them started was, was with that story. And it, it's also kind of funny that when I first pitched that story to my editors, they didn't want to run it. <laughs> they were like, oh, who are these guys? They shut down a couple of years ago. They're no big deal. And I was, I was like, actually, 
Nassim Taleb is kind of a big deal in the hedge fund world. He's very, you know, well known. And, you know, it's got this other element to it that they're starting a new hedge fund. So they, they were, my editor was like, why don't we just write a short blog about it? <laughs> this is back when blogs were a thing. Uh, and I, I said, no, we got, let's run this in the paper. I finally convinced them. And then we did run the story. Uh, and it was, it became the most read story in the website for, you know, several days. Wow, nice one. How has it been um, witnessing, particularly Taleb's, but also Spitznagel's, um, rise of almost fame and popularity in the last 15 years? Yeah, you know, uh, obviously when they started uh, Universa in 2007, it was very small. Uh, it was this weird strategy that nobody else was doing. And... Uh, you know, I encountered a lot of flack actually from uh, people who criticized me for writing about them because they thought it was bogus. Um, some people did that this is a bogus strategy that's not going to work, and I'm helping them to raise money by elevating them in the pages of the Wall Street Journal, which is something we're very we try to be very careful about uh, in the paper is to you know not uh, give air time to things that can be sketchy. I'd never thought it was sketchy. I thought it was fascinating what they were doing. And, uh, you know, it, I mean, one, one of the things that, uh, you know, really spoke to me about what, you know, Nassim's approach to finance is, you know, when I came into, uh, you know, writing about Wall Street, I, I don't come from a finance background or an economics background. Uh, I studied literature <laughs> in college, uh, and you know when I first started, you know I went to uh, New York. I, you know, uh, in the '90s, I could tell you a lot about 17th-century English novels, you know, but virtually nothing about, <laughs> you know, uh, economics or finance. I didn't know the difference between a stock and a bond. I had no interest uh, in it. Um, so as I uh, started you know, covering Wall Street and reading up on finance and economics, I, you know, came across this notion that uh, kind of ruled on Wall Street that uh, everything is ruled by uh, self-interest and uh, rational, rational self-interest. So the, this is sort of the central idea behind uh, modern economic theory is that it's 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 very rational and uh prices are always reflecting uh what the current thought is about where markets are supposed to go and it's uh um it, it's very orderly okay nasim comes along and says you know that's bullshit, <laughs> and we we, it's it's random. Uh, people are fooled by randomness. This is his first book uh, says, um, and that you know that really spoke to me, and because I thought you know I look at humanity as a kind of a stew of emotions and uh, you know fear and greed. And when I look at markets, I see lots of fear and greed. I don't see rationality, and to me that's kind of what rules how how things go um and you can see that and you know why do we have bull markets why do we have bubbles why do we have crashes 
These are because of, uh, you know, fear and greed. Um, so uh, that, you know, in the empiricist strategy or what became the universal strategy is meant to capitalize on, on that, that we have bubbles and we don't really know, you know, when it's a bubble or, you know, when it's going to crash, but it's, it's there designed to capitalize on the chaos, on the crashes. And at the time, you know, when it launched, most investors didn't think that this was an effective strategy because it loses, it's, it's to, you know, in, according to most, uh, approaches to finance, it's kind of stupid because it loses money virtually all the time. It only makes money in, in very discrete periods when there's a huge move, a huge downturn in the market. And that's, that's not very uh, attractive to most investors who want to be making money steadily with very low volatility as much as, as, as most of the time as possible. Um, so they had, as I write in the book, they had a lot of trouble raising money after they launched in 2007 for a full year, practically, they raised nothing <laughs> aside from a little seed capital they had when they first launched. Um, they pitched the strategy all over the place. No one wanted it. And this is, you know, 2007 and early 2008. This is not a very calm time in the market. It's frothy. Uh, frothy. Yeah. I mean, everybody could see that something big was, you know, coming. Um, nobody, of course, knew that it would be as, as you know, catastrophic as it was. Um, so they, you know, they did get a little bit of money in the, around mid 2008, and then comes along September, October 2008, market crashes, and they make about a billion dollars on a very small amount of money uh, that they had. So they, it was it was good timing for for both Nassim and Mark because mm. Nassim had come out with the Black Swan, which is saying crazy things happen. <laughs> Perfect and timing. It. <laughs> yeah, for both of them. So to expand on that point you've just made, the forces are such that one rare extreme event could be more valuable than the accumulated gains from years and years of daily iteration. That's the universa sort of um, in a nutshell. Um, but that you only feel that at this great zoomed out perspective, you know, that you've got looking at a 15 year history of, um, of, of universal. And I think they've had something like two big windfalls or something. So like looking at it over a long period of time, it makes sense. But on the day to day, it must be so unbelievably demoralizing. So, um, you know, what are the principles that allowed Taleb and Spitznagel to just keep taking loss day after day yeah well it's interesting that's why empirica shut down in 2004 um at least one of the reasons is nasim couldn't take it it was too stressful for him he you know he wanted that rush of you know victory uh nasim is i think it's not you know the surprising thing to say that he's he has an ego. <laughs> like, he wants <laughs> what you know. He, he wants to be proven right, and in financial markets, that's one of the you know um, things that draws people to it. Is you're when you're right, you're really proven uh, that you're right because you make a lot of money. And yeah. this was you know 2002, 2003. 
the Fed was injecting a lot of money into the markets post 9-11, post dot-com crash. So the markets were very, you know, uh, calm. And he just, he couldn't take it. He thought it was making him sick. Uh, he was worried that he might uh, relapse in cancer. He had a throat cancer issue the previous decade. Uh, Mark, on the other hand, loved what they were doing and believed in it. He had been, you know, as, uh, you know, I, I write in the book, um, when he was a cub trader on the Chicago Board of Trade, he uh, was mentored by this veteran commodity trader, uh, Everett Clip, who had this mantra uh, that he taught him um, to, you know, in order to survive in this business, you need to do something that is very contrary to human nature. You need to love to lose. Uh, and he beat this into Mark uh, and all his other traders that he, he trained. Mark really, you know, uh, it really sunk in with him. And what it means is if you have a position and it starts moving against you, sell it. Just right away, immediately sell it. Just get out of it and lose and, and love that. <laughs> you did that. Uh, and, it, it, you know, it's, he would say it's, it's against, you know, uh, how most of us think because you believe in your position. There's a reason you got into it. Uh, and, you know, your mind is going to tell you to stick in, stick with this trade because it's going to turn around. But that's not how markets work. Markets are, as I was saying, uh, you know, greed and fear. Irrational things drive prices. So if you can discipline yourself to take that loss and live to trade another day, then you'll be around and, you, and you'll make money. Uh, so, so Mark had it beaten into him that taking these daily losses was actually the right thing to do. And he had that discipline. Uh, he had that, uh, you know, they, they worked out a methodology a protocol uh, to, you know, keep the portfolio in a, a place that it's going to have maximum gains when there is a crash that's inevitably going to happen. Um, and he, he could just do it. So it's, it's definitely one of the tougher things about the strategy. Uh, you know, I think uh, most people on Wall Street have pretty short-term incentives to, you know, yearly incentives because they're aiming for an annual bonus. So that's the big thing on, you know, in finance and Wall Street is the annual bonus. That's where most of your money comes from. But if you lost a lot of money that year, no bonus, no bonus year after year after year, you know, and I asked uh, Mark, uh, you know, how do you how do you get your uh, traders to to deal with that? You know, the fact that they're not going to get a bonus. And he said the way that they look, they what they tell their employees is thinking about think about it as a, a stock option in a startup company that you're not going to be able to monetize for years and years. Uh, sorry, my phone went off. Um, you're not going to be able to monetize for years and years, but when you do, it's going to be a huge payoff. And that's the way they they think about it. Um, so yeah, it's it's tough. Um, and I think it's also why they're kind of unique. I mean, there's not a lot of these strategies on Wall Street, and uh, Spitznagel doesn't think he'll ever really face a lot of competition. Um, you, you do see little spurts after, like after the global financial crisis, 
you saw, you know, Universe was so successful, so copycats launched, but they don't stick around for long. They'll, they'll, you know, be around for three or four years, and then they're like, screw this, you know, we're, <laughs> we're losing money all the time. You know, as I um, was listening to the book and you explained those dynamics and then now have explained it again, it makes me think that, could it be that even Spitznagel has more self-confidence than Taleb? Someone who definitely presents an ego of of elite <laughs> self-confidence? Uh, it, it's kind of funny that you mentioned that. Um, you're definitely dealing with two very self-confident people with egos uh, in, in Mark and Nassim, uh, they both have, they both have tremendous respect for one another. Um, they're totally different people in many, many ways. Uh, you know, I, I write about this, how, you know, Nassim likes to, uh, you know, go to, yeah, Nassim calls himself a flaneur, <laughs> which, you know, I kind of associate with silk scarves and, you know, patent leather shoes and you yeah. know books bookstores and oxford intellectuals uh, whose work is yeah. significantly more important than whatever else anyone else is doing right um reading poetry uh you would never ever hear mark snagel call himself a flaneur he you know he, he likes to you know skateboard and you know engage in kind of you know risky activities and and Nassim, I mean, the riskiest thing he'll do is get on a bicycle. You know, Scott, I cannot make sense of this. Can you enlighten me? So, Mart Spitznagel and then a character we haven't introduced yet, Didius Onet, both expose themselves to extreme physical risk, yet they are probably two of the most uh, educated people on risk, maybe ever. You know, top 0.0001% of people of all time, they have analyzed, understood, and internalized risk to the core. Yet Didier Sonnet is flying his motorbike from Zurich to Rome in a day. You couldn't do something more risky. So how do you come to terms with that? How do they rationalize it in their own heads? Being so aware of the risks they are taking, especially risk of ruin too. I mean, you're riding a motorbike at 150 clicks. There is zero margin for error there. So yeah, could you try and rationalize that? Yeah, I, it's a good question. Um, I think with Didier, he he's also a very you know extremely self confident person. Uh, this comes across in many ways, uh, and, and you know I've had multiple conversations with him. Um, he, I think for him, it's a measure of the control of risk, and you know that he can subject himself to something that is so potentially fatal and you know risk of ruin and and master it uh so it's again a self-confidence thing like self-confidence uh belief in the in the you know uh ability to control uh you know random events of course i i I told the seam about what didier did and he said that guy's gonna kill himself (laughs) that was my Uh, reaction he, you know, I mean, Nassim would never get on a motorcycle um, and you know, drive it 25 miles an hour, much less 175 miles an hour. Uh, but Didier's made it so far. He's been doing this for decades on these on these super bikes. And Mark, uh, he, Mark recognizes the contrast. I mean, he he I think he himself 
has some curiosity about, you know, why he likes to do these things. And I mean, one of the things I, I write about is uh, how when he was um, when when they were based in Los Angeles, uh, he got into this activity called soaring. Which to me sounds terrifying. Uh, it sounds you, you, terrifying. Uh, a plane flies a motorless uh, a glider uh, up into the sky and then drops it. And then you navigate the glider down to the earth with no engine whatsoever. Uh, and you're you know, obviously very high up. You're flying over mountains. Um, and it, it sounds fun, but it also is pretty dangerous and yeah with somebody who you know uh is running a strategy based on the idea that you can never see what's going to happen around the next corner um it's it's a little curious <laughs> somebody would do that you know this is kind of supporting the um uh observation that perhaps spitznagel and didier are, are actually more self-confident have more hubris than the simtaleb because they are that maybe it sounds like they're so confident of their ability to judge risk that they can almost um you know uh discount all of the potential risk of ruin that come to them like diddy is so good at riding his bike that you know he can he can see far enough down the road to dodge the guy who's run the red light um x y and z example yeah. you know spitznagel is so talented at flying the sora that if a, if a gust of wind does blow him off course you know he can land back safely to ground but taleb saying no look on a long enough timeline all these activities you're doing you're exposing yourself to too much risk of ruin maybe taleb is the least arrogant of them all could, could that be possible <laughs> uh yeah, I you know it, it. I think there might be different kinds of uh, arrogance we're talking about here, um, because I think Nassim would say he he has a better understanding of risk and uh, the uncertainty that people are facing, and you know I mean it's for him it's almost a radical uh, uncertainty that very few people can embrace um because it is kind of if if you do uh believe that the world as you are living it is completely uh chaotic and uncertain um that's that's kind of unnerving and uh i think it you know it's probably true <laughs> but it's not it's not something that we like to live with day to day uh so I, I think it, what we're sort of getting at here, what you're getting at, is the uh, how how extreme Nassim embraces the idea of uncertainty and our inability to control things, um, and he really is he really does uh, believe that and embrace that. Scott, I just really want to make the most of the time we have remaining. So I wanted to ask um, you about this line from the book, which I think gets to the core of the Chaos King's worldview so perfectly. Um, and the line is that a tightly connected global system implies a single deviation will eventually dominate the sum of their effects. That's the end of the quote. So can you explain why, because we are more connected than ever before, the chance of extreme events increases, as does the consequences and effects of those extreme events? Uh, yeah, uh, so this is um, sort of about, you know, 
why the the subtitle of my book is important to look at. I, I you know, it's uh, how Wall Street traders make billions in the new age of crisis. And that second part, new age of crisis, is uh, what I'm trying to explain with you know what you talked about there um, is we we live in in what Nassim talks about uh, you know in his books. Um, is we live in a world that's more connected than ever in many, many different ways, uh, economically, financially, uh, socially, um, the, the machines that we're building, the planes that fly us all over the place, uh, the supply chains that uh, we rely on. We saw this in the, in the uh, pandemic where, you know, there was breakdowns in very discrete parts of the like the automotive supply chain or the computer supply chain that rippled throughout the globe. Uh, so these were little, you know, discrete events in a place like in, you know, China uh, that, you know, is a, a node in a network that the entire network supply uh, uh, relies on. Um, so again, with the pandemic, uh, you saw it with, uh, with flights. Um, the, uh, you know, previous, you know, way of looking at pandemics is, was that if there, you had a very virulent, uh, outbreak, something very deadly, it would usually burn itself out like in a small village in Africa, uh, because it just, it killed people so quickly. It couldn't break out of the, the village, but with travel, with increased travel and flights, uh, and people have looked at this mathematically, um, that is coming to an end. And uh, we're looking at a world where these very deadly uh, viruses can break out and spread very rapidly. So this is, a, this is another thing that's changed. We're living this, you know, with this new uh, uh, dynamic uh, because of travel. And flight travel has really, I've looked at the numbers. I mean, it really has accelerated uh, a lot. Um, in the past decade or so. Um, another part of this, is, you know, new age of crisis is climate change and glo global warming. And, you know, we're obviously all seeing it now uh, all around the world with these heat waves. Um, it's accelerating, it's unpredictable. Um, it's uh, affecting every part of our economies. And, you know, so we're in this like race to try to, you know, mitigate it uh and and change our entire energy system and that's entirely unpredictable um and it's going to have all these uh different impacts on you know uh where we get our energy from who is creating the, the energy uh petro states are going to go into decline there's a, th this is a very very chaotic uh situation uh that we're in on many different levels um, and it, it, one of the one of the interesting things about um, me, you know, me writing about climate change in this book is uh, like I, I see it in Amazon reviews. People are accusing me of being very political, uh, and I I think that is so bizarre and wrongheaded because this is not a political. Uh, but anyway, yeah, I mean, so you have many overlapping. Uh, things going on in the world now that are creating what I, you know, I call this new age of crisis. And it means that these extreme events uh, in 
you know, finance and economies and in the world around us are accelerating. And I, I don't want to, you know, uh, come off as somebody who's, you know, hair on fire saying we're all doomed and, uh, you know, uh, you know, sh shouting fire in a theater. Uh, what I really wanted to get at in, in this book was how to think about this and how to prepare for it. Uh, and I thought, you know, with Nassim and Mark, it, it would be interesting to to look at how people who have really perfected a strategy and way of thinking about extreme events in financial markets, how how that worldview and that approach to things uh, can be applied to these this other broadening, widening world of extreme events that we're all dealing with. So the dynamics around these extreme events, which um, if we look back, have always happened through time, are accelerating because more people are more connected than ever before. And therefore, the consequences of a bad event affects therefore more people. Yeah, they uh, they can magnify, uh, you know, all of the crisis. Adam Tooze, uh, an economist, uh, calls this the poly crisis, and what he means by that is you uh, you have more and more uh, of these extreme crisis events happening um, around the world, and they by overlapping uh, they magnify the the effect of the crisis, they be, they become worse. So you have things like, uh, you know, climate change, uh, political uh, polarization, um, economic turmoil, and these can magnify themselves. So like in, in the United States, uh, we see this extreme political polarization happening um, and, you know, threats to democracy. Uh, and this is, not just ha happening in isolation to these other things that are happening in the world. We we're talking about climate change. This is something that is, you know, added to political polarization uh, in the U.S. You know, and when I started writing this book, uh, it was uh, in 2020 um, when there really was a palpable sense of things unraveling uh, and getting out of control. Uh, and that the you know leaders of the world actually weren't uh, in control and were actually uh, extremely uh, dysfunctional, um, especially felt, felt that in the U.S. And I I lived in the U.K. Uh, for five years um, just before that happened and saw Brexit uh, up close. I actually reported on that, uh, and you know um, there was just. You know that that's kind of what the birth of the book was was in 2020 uh you know seeing things unraveling and it, i mean if you talk about a new age of crisis it's that definitely felt like um thing you know things were out of control things have calmed down since then uh but i think that it's it's worth at least to a little bit <laughs> uh the climate stuff is getting worse but uh i think it's worth you know remembering the lessons of 2020 um, and how we dealt with the pandemic or bungled it, especially in the United States. 
just to take the other side of that observation you said there for a moment about how it feels like um, it's all getting more worse and the poly crisis feels like you've identified a lot of different uh, things over time, political polarization in the US, you saw Brexit as well. We get more and more news about climate change every day. Just take the other side of it for a second. And I think Taleb as well writes about this explicitly in one of his books, is that it, it all might feel like we're getting worse for the same reason we're more connected than ever, because we happen to see more than we ever would have before. And say in the 1970s, when there is all types of crazy political stuff happening all over the world, you would only ever see maybe a fraction of it. Whereas now, because we're so digitally connected, we see so much more of it. And therefore, our um, impression of it might therefore be inflated. And we can easily start um, drawing lines between all these other nodes where beforehand the nodes weren't around for us to draw the lines between. Yeah, uh, I mean, definitely, you know, we're more plugged into the world now than ever before through social media and Twitter or X or whatever they call it now. Um, and, you know, uh, if it bleeds, it leads, they like to say with news. So, you know, the news, the, the news that's pushed to us is always about something bad that's happening. And I can say as a reporter for a newspaper that, yeah, stories about bad shit are uh gonna gonna get more ink um it's so it's it, it, it's true it's hard to separate that dynamic from you know and trying to uh understand what's really going on but i i would say that there are some especially with climate uh hard data uh you know that show showing that things are getting more chaotic and uh unpredictable you, you see it with the insurance industry, and, and this is something I get at in the latter part of the book, is uh, I, I looked at, you know, in 2020, 2021, uh, the insurance industry was really grappling with how to deal with what, you know, they call systemic risk. Uh, and it was especially the pandemic, but it was also major storms in the U.S., hurricanes worsened by uh, global warming that they were beginning to you know, realize that they did not understand the nature of this risk and couldn't quantify it. So, you know, insurance companies, they, you know, they, they are based on quantifying risk, actuarial tables, you know, how many people die at what age. Uh, with these new risks, they are not quantifiable. They can't put a number on it. And you, you need to be, to be able to estimate that risk to price the risk to to know what you're going to charge your customers um so uh i would say that's that's just one example of how uh just pure hard data is showing that uh we are facing um a a new age of crisis in the world okay. because of these overlapping issues you know i mean pandemics uh you know they it overlaps with climate because you have uh you know places like the the tundra in russia uh is you know you're in sweden um that they're melting <laughs> they're thawing out and there's yeah. this big concern that ancient uh viruses are going to be released uh as the as that permafrost melts um okay. so that's just one place where you you have potential overlapping risks and these things yeah. are, you know, 
uh, that's the nature of climate change is it changes. <laughs> and when you have a an entire global climate changing, uh, you have unquantifiable risk. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. I'm completely uh, echo everything you say about climate change. The point was more just that on the poly crisis, being so exposed to so much more information than before, you might be able to draw more lines between more nodes, whereas the node might just be a red herring. It might just be noise. Um, and therefore, you could then overestimate what the poly crisis might be. Um, but there was a point that you made about insurance, which I mean, it's a shame we don't have more time. But I, I feel like whether it's Taleb, Spitznag or Didier, I would love to hear someone do like, um, a, you know, this style type of writing about the insurance industry. I just had a podcast with Luca Delana, who wrote a book about ergodicity, and he made the most fascinating point about insurance in there. Um, and you just made me think about it then as well. Um, I'm afraid that it would eat up all of our time if we did it now, but maybe we can bookmark it, hopefully for a future conversation. Um, let's see how far, Scott, we can answer these last few questions since we've only got 10 minutes left. Do you come more down on the Talebian worldview or the DDS or Net worldview? Uh, I, I don't want to tip my hand too much, but I think that uh, you read the book, you probably can uh, figure out where I stand on that. <laughs> okay. Um, is anyone currently in the process of writing a biography about Nassim Taleb? Uh, not that I'm aware of. Uh, he actually was pretty resistant to doing this book with me initially uh, because he was, he was saying he's writing his own autobiography. Is um, he? Oh, great. Yeah. Is If he actually is, I don't know, but that's what he told me. <laughs> he he didn't want somebody else writing a story and he you know he he was like i don't want to uh i don't want to be in some fucking michael lewis book uh you know where people are telling stories and he was like i'm against the narrative fallacy <laughs> that you're going to tell a story about things and people are going to confused about it but eventually he he gave in so it could be a tongue-in-cheek way of also just saying that the continuation of the insert that was his autobiographical journey since, um, as you pointed out in the book, which I thought was hilarious, like he, he created a fictional character, which is, which is essentially him. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Nero Tulip yeah. Uh, is, you know, NT. It's not, he's not being too subtle about it. Uh, what do you think about Chamath Palihapitiya? I have to pass because I don't really know. Okay. Okay. <laughs> um, I know the name, but no. Fair enough. Absolutely no problem at all. Um, quickly, you're an author. Sorry. Um, you're an author. Maybe you could quickly explain the role of extremist Dan in the distribution for authors. But as well, I wanted to explicitly ask you about how, as a journalist, you're optimizing for tail risks both the good and the bad <laughs> yeah uh yeah i guess the extremist and uh phenomena with books is um some sell wildly and are you know in the millions and a lot uh sometimes like my own books <laughs> don't, don't sell a lot uh and and that's the nature of the publishing industry I think movies are, are similar. Um, they just, you know, movies. Yeah. Some things just take off. Uh, and 
they have sort of you know these self-reinforcing effects they get bigger and bigger you know like a snowball uh you know rolling down a mountain uh it's compounding there you know it's definitely something to seem uh it's one of the core ideas of uh this seems books is you have extremistan uh which is you know the social world the financial world and then there's mediocristan uh which is you know like i think it, it derives from observations of the movements of stars uh and our lim things are limited by uh the physical world like you know the uh how much people weigh you know if you have 100 people in the room and you know they're going to there's going to be an average of like 150 or 180 pounds um but that's not like the financial world like if you have 100 people in a room uh and you look at their average wealth and then bill gates walks in uh it's going to change a lot just because of one person and that's the world of extremistan um so sorry what was the second question or part of the question um as a journalist having now absorbed all the chaos king's worldview how do you think about tail risk in your own line of work how do you hedge against it and then optimize for it <laughs> yeah well it's it's kind of funny you know as a uh writer who kind of specializes in writing about financial crisis um which my two previous books uh the quants and um dark pools were focused on uh I, I feel, you know, I, I remember this financial advisor I used to talk to um, writing stories about what was going on in the markets. Uh, he would say, you're long volatility <laughs> as a reporter writing about, um, you know, the markets when things get bad and you're, you're a writer who uh, specializes in writing about, you know, market crashes. It's, it feels kind of like a hedge. <laughs> uh, against uh market crashes because when it, things go go wrong people want to read about it and that was my my book my first book the quants uh i was really lucky in the timing of that because i had started uh working on it in 2007 um you know after i had written a, a page one story for the wall street journal about the secretive uh morgan stanley uh quant trading firm and it wasn't about the book idea wasn't about markets crashing and you know catastrophic financial trades um it was just about this secretive world of quants and how a lot of them knew each other and they all like to play poker together mm -hmm. and uh you know their uh, luxurious lifestyles and uh i was putting this book idea together and then in early 2008 uh bear stearns collapsed and the very next week, I pitched the book uh, uh, through my agent, and there was this ex suddenly this extreme interest in the publishing industry and mm -hmm. writing about and, and publishing books about financial markets. So it got a lot of interest. Um, it also created a lot of uh, difficulty for me writing that book because the people that I had been interviewing who were very eager to talk to me and tell me their stories over the course of 2008, very bad things happened to them. Mm. <laughs> and they no longer wanted to have somebody writing a book about them. And they stopped, they cut me off. Uh, so that, that complicated the reporting of that book a lot. What about your children? You mentioned earlier you have a son. 
how do you teach him to optimize for serendipity in his life? Uh, that's a good question. Um, you know, I think uh, my approach with him, he's nine years old, uh, very precocious, um, is to just not push things on him, not try to get him to do it. You know, I like to play tennis, uh, try to get him into tennis, but he's not, you know, he's, he's not that into it. He likes soccer. Um, so I try to, you know, have a soft touch and just let him do what he, he likes. And I think that's, uh, you know, if, if you allow anybody to just pursue what they love, um, they're going to enjoy it. They're going to be successful at it. And I don't want to push my own um, interests on, on him or would on anybody. Finally, Scott. Um, and again, forgive me for sort of rushing through the end here. I don't know if you got the sense, but I, I do. It's such a deeply fascinating um, series of topics that you just explore in Chaos Kings. Um, and it's such a good book as well. We haven't touched on like Bill Ackman's trade. Um, we barely touched on Didius on that. Barely Spitznagel. So yeah, there's so much for the audience to to pick up on if they um, if they pick up the book. Um, but if you were bullish on one particular country, which one would it be? Got to think about this. So. <laughs> um, I am. This is going to be, this might sound strange, but I'm bullish on China. Uh, I think that China has been very smart. Um, I do not like the uh, government, the totalitarian government and uh, the horrific things, you know, the, the genocide that they're perpetrating. Um, but China has been extremely smart in their preparation for climate change. And I think this, uh, it, this comes out of what was going on in the country in the 2000s when they had a very, uh, you know, very bad pollution. And, you know, we all remember this, the images of Beijing covered in smog. And they re I think they realized they had a big problem. They needed to diversify their economy. I don't think they were they did this specifically because of climate change. I think they did it because of they they realized that they could not rely on coal power to generate all the energy that they needed. They needed other uh, forms of energy. So they in around 2010 they launched this huge initiative to diversify their energy supply chain, and you could see it in you know they now dominate solar panels, wind batteries, all the supply chains that go into those things. Um, this is why we are now scrambling in America to try to catch up to them. But they have such a huge head start uh, you know, in EVs. I mean, we have Tesla, but they have multiple EV companies um, and EVs are taking off in China. So, uh, you know, I don't like the government at all. I don't want to say, you know, uh, but they did something very smart and we all need to kind of be thankful for what they did because by uh, scaling up 
the the production of solar wind batteries they've caused the cost of those things to drop dramatically 90 percent in a decade uh cheaper for batteries uh when now solar is the cheapest source of energy in that we the world has ever seen and that's going to you know that is going to have huge economic uh, impacts because even natural gas is is uh going to become uh uncompetitive with solar and that's going to allow us to decarbonize uh, the, the global economy. Um, whether we do it fast enough remains to be seen. Now America is in the game, and I'd say I'm bullish on what we're doing here uh, with the, you know, the attempt to catch up, but we're, we're a decade behind. Europe is a bit ahead of uh, the US in its attempt to, to um, transition its, its energy supply. Um, but we're all we're all in it now, and China just has a big advantage in that they you know uh, got in this before us. I mean, I, I actually got into reporting about this stuff when I was in uh, based in London covering the the mining industry, and uh, was you know noticing around 2016, 2017 that there was suddenly this huge demand for cobalt for some reason, <laughs> uh, and some companies I covered. Uh, had a lot of cobalt and their profits were going up. I actually, I went to Congo a couple times to report on the uh, co uh, the problems with cobalt mining there with the, you know, child, child labor. Um, and when I went there, uh, I saw a lot of Chinese people. <laughs> um, they were they were involved in, uh, you know, buying the stuff, um, selling it. They had these big markets. Uh, there was just a bunch of Chinese companies that you could go to and they're, you know, they're very involved in this. And it's like, how is it that the Chinese are so involved in the cobalt trade in Congo? Um, what is going on here? And the reason was the batteries. Cobalt is a big component of lithium ion batteries. Uh, so that just shows you how deeply they were involved in this, you know, uh, this nationwide effort to ramp up their, uh, renewable um, efforts and you know it's paid off for them what a fascinatingly contrarian take uh we haven't had much uh, bullish on china so far you're not concerned by everything peter zihan's saying and um i i don't know peter zihan so oh it's it, it's all mostly demographic related oh yeah no that's obviously a problem um, and I'm probably just coming at it from my, you know, little corner of the world and looking at uh, climate and the energy transition so much. So I've, I've got a bit of a distorted view. They have huge, huge problems in China, but they also have this big uh, advantage and in, in, in this one in the the entire global hmm. energy system is transitioning uh, to renewables and you know, dominating that is is a pretty good place to be. Is geothermal on your radar? Uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, I I know of some companies in uh, the U.S. that are getting into that. Um, it's still pretty small, mm. but yeah, it's a good firm source of of renewable energy. Mm. Uh, but yeah, I got I got to jump, Ryan, because I'm I'm absolutely late for this call. Scott, you're a legend, I'd love to mate. Keep talking. Thank you so much. Thank you, Ryan. Thanks a lot.